God has given us the record. This is the truth, the record. You know, God has put eternal life in Jesus Christ. And whoever has Jesus has life. Matthew 27. I'd like if we could read together just a couple of verses, verses 33 to 36 of Matthew chapter 27. 33 to 36. If you have that passage, would you stand to your feet, please, as we read the Word of God together? Beginning at verse 33, let's read together. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, good day that you've blessed us with, and a good opportunity to remember once again what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. Help us to have eyes to see. Lord, open our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. We're here today to remember all what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago on the cross. Now, in Matthew 27, uh, open your Bible again if you closed it. Open up there to Matthew 27. It says here, they came to this place called Golgotha. And that's, uh, the word means a skull, because it kind of looked like that as you stood back. And they gave him something to drink. It was vinegar um, mingled with gall. It was a numbing drink. The idea was to numb. It was like a heavy-duty Tylenol, to numb the sensations. They weren't doing this to be kind. They were doing this to prolong death. That was the whole idea of crucifixion, was to drag your death out, make it the most hideous, painful thing. Now, the Lord Jesus went to the cross to do work, to do a job that he could not do anywhere else. And when he realized what it was they were giving him, he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it because he needed his full faculties to be able to do on the cross a work of atonement for you and for me. And so... They held a little gambling casino there in verse 35. They uh, cast lots and uh, parted his garments and so on. And it was all in fulfillment of a prophecy made just about a thousand years before. In Psalm 22, there's the, uh, the prophecy. We all know of Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, right? Famous psalm. Well, it's kind of a triplet. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Psalm 23, of course, deals with that good shepherd aspect of Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 22, before it, deals with his suffering. 
And Psalm 24 after it deals with his glory. And so you have the crown of thorns uh, in chapter 22 of Psalms. You have the shepherd's crook, that you know, thing the shepherds would use to lift you know, a fallen sheep in Psalm 23. And you have then the crown of glory in Psalm 24. And so this was a prophecy made a thousand years before Jesus died that they were going to gamble for his clothing. And that's exactly what happened. The Bible is so accurate. And so I have a small devotional for us today. And we're going to sort of look at these three aspects of what it's all about. Now, sound booth, I sent you some pictures. Could you put the first one up there for us, please? So we're going to take a look here at his death, Christ's death. Now, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ was both at the same time a terrible thing and it was also a wonderful thing. It was terrible that an innocent, good man who was well known for helping people, helping people in need and performing miracles, it was a tragedy, a travesty of justice that he should be condemned to die and not just any death, but the most awful death known to men back then, possibly even today. Means of uh, execution are varied. There's, you know, firing squad, there's the hangman's noose and so on. But they say the worst way to die was crucifixion. Interesting. Um, how it was all prophesied in the scriptures. Crucifixion was something that was reserved for the worst criminals. That's who got crucified. And yet, Christ's death is at the same time a wonderful thing because he bore in his body somehow, he bore all of sin's penalty. The Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it doesn't just mean physical death. Because good people die as well. It means to be separated from God forever. And in, assess, in essence, that's what death is. Death, as we understand it, as we see it, as we know it, death, physical death, is a separation of the soul from the body. When the soul leaves the body, this, <laughs> the body's dead. And of course, then we have a funeral, we put the body in the, in the ground. When the soul separates from God, that's spiritual death. There's only two places the Bible talks about. There's a heaven above, there's a hell below. There's nothing in between. You don't come back to earth for a second kick at the can. There is no such thing as this reincarnation particularly in different life forms. Some people are taught this and some people believe it. That they're reincarnated as a different life form and then they're reincarnated again as a different life form, hopefully a higher one, until one day they reach, you know, nirvana or some kind of heavenly plateau. The Bible tells us the truth. This is it, folks. This is the life we've been given. And it's in this life that we need to make our decision for God. So many people make their decision for what the world has to offer. They go for the world, the flesh, the devil. All you have to do is look at the lives of Hollywood people and generally the entertainment industry. And it reeks 
of worldliness. People who could care less for God and for eternity and what's going to happen to them after they die. They're living for the present. And they live, they eat, drink, and be merry because someone told them when you die, you die like a dog and there's nothing left of you. And they willingly believe that. Whereas God has given us the record. This is the truth, the record. You know, God has put eternal life in Jesus Christ. And whoever has Jesus has life. And whoever doesn't have Jesus doesn't have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That means to die and go to hell. But have everlasting life. The wages of sin is death. That's spiritual death. Separation in hell. But the gift of God is eternal life. That's heaven. And it's a gift. Imagine that. Some people are taught that they have to purchase eternal life. They do it through baptism. They do it through communion. They do it through giving money. They do it through self-flagellation where they hit themselves with whips. Some of them crawl over sharp uh, pieces of glass in order to prove to God how humble they are so that they're worthy of eternal life. Other people have the idea that because they suffer in this life, that God would not make them suffer for eternity. That this is their living hell. What, what a lie of the devil. This is a picnic, a walk in the park compared to hell. All we have to do is take a look at our Savior and what he suffered for us on the cross. And we'll get some idea of what hell is like. He thirsted. He cried out to the Father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the cry of a lost soul in hell. The Lord Jesus experienced what you and I deserve in hell. He did it all on the cross. And so we say that this death of Jesus, this crucifixion, was both at the same time a horrendous, heinous act of injustice, but at the same time it was a marvelous, wonderful work of God that only God could do. On the cross, Jesus bore the sin, not just of men, not just of women, not just of the select few of here and there throughout earth's history. He bore the sin of all men and all women. No one ever on judgment day will be able to stand before Jesus and say, well, you didn't die for me. If you had died for me, I would have received you and I'd be in heaven. No. People are in hell not because... God so much condemned them to hell. They're in hell because they refused God's remedy. God says you're lost on your way to hell. Here's the remedy. Here's the cure. And men have said, nah, nah. I'll, I'll, I'll trust. You know, I'll take my chances in eternity. Others have said, God, truth is you don't even exist. Heaven doesn't exist. Hell doesn't exist. This life is this life. That's all there is to it. Some people, they really hang their hopes on that. They'll believe the writings of Darwin far sooner than they'll believe the writings of God. Now, where's the wisdom in that? Hmm? Well, the cross had become up to the point 
of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the cross, the crucifixion, had become a symbol of the worst way to die. The worst way to die. Now today, can you think of a way that you don't want to die? Maybe the thought of hanging from a a noose would just terrify you. Of all the ways to die, please don't hang me. Maybe for some, they would say, no, no, the electric chair. I can't imagine sitting in that thing, strapped in that thing, and and having 5,000 volts course through my body and my eyes bug out. And No, that's the worst possible way to die. Let's take, for example, the electric chair. It is a grisly way to die, don't you think? It seems that way. But can you imagine if there was a group of people who started glorying in the electric chair? They started making little images of the electric chair and they would wear them around their neck like a necklace. They would proudly show off the electric chair, the electric chair. We'd look at those people and we'd say, there's something not right about those people. They must be loony. Huh? Who in their right mind would glorify the electric chair? And yet, that's how people looked upon the early Christians. Because the cross, we've got a a cross here on the front of the pulpit. The cross was the emblem, it was the symbol of the most horrible way to die. And now, the Christians were glorying in the cross. We just sang about it. The old rugged cross so despised by the world, holds a wondrous attraction for me. You see, truth is, if Jesus had have died in the electric chair, if he had borne our sin and our shame, sitting there strapped in, head shaven, maybe feet in a pan of water or something, and if that's how he died, then Christians would be looking at the electric chair as the door to heaven, the means that we can get our sins forgiven. Does that make any sense? We're talking about the cross. Back in Roman days in which Jesus lived, the cross was so despised. Only the worst people got crucified. And truly, they dragged out death. Death was a welcome relief to the sufferers on the cross. Some people were known to last for several days on the cross. Usually most people who were crucified would die, oh, say within about 48 hours, two days. Some of them, one in fact, one case in fact, the condemned man lasted for nine days on the cross. And typically on the cross they would nail you absolutely naked. Because shame was part of the punishment. People walking by would cast insults at you. They'd pick up sand, dirt, and throw it in your face. They would throw rocks at you. They'd taunt and tease you. That was all part of it. Finally, 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 the condemned would die. It was the most horrible, horrible, inhumane way of dying was the cross. And yet that was the way that God chose It was the worst that man could offer. You know, wicked people in the world today, they shake their fist at God. They curse Him. You hear this, OMG, 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 all the time, 
people are taking his name in vain. For some people, the only time they ever mention the name of Jesus is in some kind of curse fashion. That's sad. But yet that is where the world is at. Unsaved, hell-bound, men, women, and young people too. The children even. The little children, you hear them with their OMGs and their cursings. Where did they learn that from? Probably from the parents, maybe the older siblings. Maybe they heard it from their teacher at school. Sad world we live in, you know. But the cross, which had been a symbol of shame, was transformed overnight by Jesus into a symbol of victory. Because now we could be forgiven. Now we could be made right with God. Now there's an entrance to heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us. That means God the Father took God the Son and made the Son to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. Jesus was not a sinner. He never had a bad thought. He never broke a promise. He never did anything that God the Father would call sin. And yet you and I, we sin a lot. We have bad thoughts. We break our promises. You know, we, we get mad over silly things. We say hurtful words. You know, we, we throw verbal hand grenades and hurt people. And of course, we've done a whole lot more than that, haven't we? Jesus hadn't committed one, not one, not one sin. He was absolutely perfect. But God made him to be sin for us. Him who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You have to be in Jesus to have the righteousness of God. If you are beside Jesus, outside of Jesus, you don't have the righteousness of God. There are a lot of religious people in the world, would you agree? And there are a lot of religious people that are doing nice humanitarian works. They're giving money to help feed the poor. They're giving medical aid. Some people volunteer their time and they they go to different parts of the world and they do medical treatments for free to help people. There's all kinds of good humanitarian things going on. When there's a hurricane, countries often ante up and will help and provide money and humanitarian aid. But none of these things, absolutely none of them, can get a man or woman to heaven. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's by His mercy. That's why salvation is a gift. You receive it or you reject it. But it's a gift and we only have this life to do it. You will not be back here on stage, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now and get another chance. You have this life. You have this one life only. Now, in chapter 27, your Bible still open? Keep your Bible open. We're not done yet. In chapter 27, we have something incredibly unique about the death Jesus died. Jesus was in control of his own death. It wasn't the Roman soldiers that killed Jesus. Jesus laid his own life down. And you'll see that here in chapter 27, verse number 50. 
Read it out loud with me, please, folks. You keep your seats there, but read verse 50 out loud. Let's go. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. As you know, us humans were, were made of three things. We're made of a body. We're made of a soul. That's the, the real you. And then there's another thing called a spirit. Sometimes it's called a ghost. But that spirit is a, a spiritual being given to you at conception. And that is what animates your body. Technically, when that spirit is gone, your body is dead. It has no life in it. In the Bible, you will often see the phrase, he gave up the ghost. And we understand that to mean, well, he died. But it's actually a very technical explanation. That, that spirit within you, that human spirit, is what keeps your heart pumping, keeps your brain waves waving. It keeps your body growing, moving, and it animates your body with physical life. The Lord Jesus was in total control. Men and women, when they come to the point of death, often will lift up their head for that last breath. That's just a natural reaction. You know, you prick us, we bleed. You tickle us, we laugh. And typically, people who die, particularly in stressful situations, when they get to that last breath, they'll lift up their, lift up their head. But that's not what Jesus said here. That's not, that's not what it says here of the Lord Jesus. In another gospel, it says he bowed his head and he yielded up the ghost. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He dismissed his spirit. He said, thank you, you've done a good job, it's time for you to leave. And he dismissed his spirit. That makes Christ's death very unique. And being God in the flesh, he's able to do that. We, on the other hand, don't have uh, quite this luxury. We have to leave that in God's hands. But you see, during his time on the cross, his six hours, remember I mentioned that usually people will be 48 hours anyhow. Six hours he was on the cross. And during that time, he had you in mind. He had me in mind. And every sin, every creepy thing that you or I have ever done, from day one until our last day on earth. The totality of our sin he paid. How did he do it? We don't know yet. We haven't uh, got to heaven to find out. How could he keep your face, your name, my face, my name in mind? We don't know yet. But he is God of very God, able to do things that we can't do. And so he finished his work. And when his work was finished, he said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. By his death, Jesus provided access to God for you and for me. Because our good works won't cut it, folks. As good as our good works are, they cannot bring us into the presence of God. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus provided a means of forgiveness for whosoever will. You don't have to be rich to be forgiven, to get to heaven. You don't have to be male or female. You don't have to be of any kind of uh, ethnicity or any culture of any, any of the countries of the world. You just have to have a humble heart. Whosoever will may come. 
And so by his death, Jesus provided access to God for you and for me. Hallelujah. The darkness of the cross brought the light of salvation. Now, we must move on. Sound booth, photo number two, if you would, please. There's a special joy, a special thrill when we think of Resurrection Sunday. A number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit Israel. While we were there, we visited Jerusalem. While we were there, we visited this scene. I didn't take this picture, by the way. But we visited the empty tomb. We had an opportunity with others in the little tour group. We had an opportunity to bend down and go into the tomb and look around. I got pictures, you know, on my camera, uh, my cell phone, I'm sorry. I got pictures on my cell phone of, of this. And it was just a wonderful opportunity. Um, some of the guys here recently went to uh, Israel and got uh, a similar opportunity. If you ever have the opportunity to go on a little trip of Israel, you should consider doing it because it'll change you. You will never read the Bible the same way after that. You'll start reading the Bible. I was there. I was there. Oh yeah, I know what this is like. That's sort of what we're going to experience when we get to heaven, isn't it? We're going to say, yes, yes, oh yes. What a joy heaven will be. What a joy the Resurrection Sunday was. Now turn a page, whatever, in your Bible to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And I'd like you to read verse 6. Verse 6. 28, verse 6. Let's read it together. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Now the women who heard the angels speak were filled with amazement and excitement and fear and all kinds of emotions because they were uh, the first to experience the truth of the resurrection. They ran quick as they could to tell the disciples. They Remember, they watched them bury Jesus. Some people say, oh, all well, the women, you know, they just went to the wrong tomb. Don't be dumb. Those women knew exactly where they were, they were going. The wrong tomb. How many tombs do you think there were around in that area? Not that many. And they knew exactly where the tomb was where they buried Jesus. And so that's exactly where they went. They watched them bury Jesus. He was kind of wrapped up. They brought him uh, in and they rolled the stone. The uh, Apostle John in the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene and she recognized him when he spoke her name. When Jesus speaks your name, you will know who it is. In the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that the women were running to tell the disciples and Jesus appeared to them and they came and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Look at verse number 9 in the same chapter. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. That's another reason why we know Jesus is God Almighty. Because you don't go around worshipping angels or people. Only God is to be worshipped. And they worshipped him. If Jesus were not God, he would have pushed them away. There are people today in religious organizations and they're being taught that Jesus is not God. What a mistake. Jesus is God of very God. Are you ready for this? 
The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. That is an eye-opener for some people, but that is the absolute truth. That's why they fell at his feet and they worshipped him. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Peter ran as fast as he could to see the empty tomb and that Jesus appeared to Peter later on that Resurrection Sunday. In Luke 24 it says... Um, No, let me back up here. We find that Jesus appeared to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they hurried back also to tell the apostles what they had seen. Remember, Thomas wasn't with them at the time. Matthew records how the soldiers who were guarding the tomb went back to the chief priest. Now, those soldiers were not Roman soldiers. They were Jewish soldiers Pilate specifically said when they came and they said, oh, that deceiver said he'd rise in three days, therefore set guards there. Pilate told them, ye have a watch, you have a watch, you have guards, you use them. And so they used temple guards and they were husky trained guys with spears and shields and swords. They were properly trained soldiers and they stood there. And they fell like dead men when Jesus rose from the dead. And so they ran back to the chief priests and told them what happened. Chief priests bribed them with money. Here's a bunch of money. Tell a lie. Tell people that while we slept, the disciples came and stole away the body. Which is hogwash. Because if they were asleep, how would they know the disciples came and stole away the body? Their, their lies wouldn't hold up in a, in a court of law. The Gospel of John tells us Jesus appeared to the apostles the next week and this time Thomas was there. John also records the disciples out in a boat fishing and Jesus called them to the shore inviting them to a a fish dinner with him. And right at the end of his time on earth the Lord Jesus met with the apostles and about 500 other men and women, disciples, believers in him. And he addressed to them his farewell message, giving them the great commission, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you alway. That means all along the way. Alway. Even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now we get to the third picture. His ascension into heaven. The ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven is the crowning end of his successful ministry here on earth. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father to become our sovereign Lord. Jesus, we wonder, why did you have to go back to heaven? Why didn't you just stay? And the Lord Jesus gave us several reasons why he had to go back. Number one, he said in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Isn't it a wonderful thought, believer? Isn't it a wonderful thought that there is a mansion being built for you in heaven? Lost people have no hope beyond the grave. They can't see beyond the tombstone. They say, this is it, my final resting place. With the worms, they'll feast on my body while I'm dead. They have no concept, no hope. I've been to a lot of funerals in my time. 
I've been to funerals of people who have known the Lord. They're saved, born again. I've been to funerals of people who were lost, did not know the Lord. What a difference. What a difference. The truth comes out at funerals, I'll tell you that. People who do not know the Lord, they're in such turmoil and twisting and tears and terror. It's, it's like the devil's got such a grip on them. No hope beyond the grave. We have hope. Secondly, in Hebrews chapter 7, another reason why Jesus went, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by him, come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for us right now in heaven, our high priest, keeping us in good stead with the Father. Number three, in John chapter 16, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Comforter is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gave the Holy Spirit. Every born again man or woman has the Holy Spirit within him or her. That makes a tremendous change in life. A tremendous new ability. You know something? I'll tell you a little secret about myself. Before I came to know Jesus as my Savior, I had a lot of trouble with alcohol. I had a lot of trouble with smoking. And I couldn't give these things up. They were chains upon me. When I came to Jesus on Sunday, April the 6th, 1975, 48 years ago. The Holy Spirit came within me. And I didn't have any problem getting rid of alcohol after that. Smoking, it took me a couple of months, but got rid of that. How'd you do that? It wasn't me who did it. It was God's Holy Spirit who gave me victory over that. Isn't that what you want? Victory? over things of the world, bad habits. You know these things are pulling you down. You know that they're going to shorten your life. You know that they're causing shipwreck in your family. But got no power, no strength. God has all of the power. And this is one of the great reasons why Jesus went back. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And so Christ's work on earth was completed. But now, folks, our work is just begun. We're sort of picking up where Jesus left off. When you and I received Jesus as Savior, He could have taken us home right away. But He left us on earth to continue working for Him. That last verse that I read for you in Matthew 28 Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Folks, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to obey the words of the Lord Jesus. Canada is one of those nations. British Columbia falls within Canada. Surrey falls within British Columbia. This is our little mission field. We have a map on the wall here. We're trying to reach our little, our little harvest, our little Jerusalem, if you will, our city. We're trying to do that with pieces of gospel literature and mailboxes. We're trying to do that with 
knocking on doors and seeing if people are interested in spiritual things. If they are, we like to offer them a Bible study. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of hard hearts out there. But listen, I'm telling you, there's also some good hearts out there. And we're looking for good hearts. We're always praying, Lord, help us to find good-hearted people. This is the work God's called us to do as Christians, not just as a church. Well, it's the church's job, it's not my job. If you're saved and part of the church, you're part of the Great Commission. Every born-again man, woman, and young person needs to be concerned about family, friends, and strangers who are lost and on their way to hell. And so here we have the three aspects, the three pictures, if you will. This is why we've met together today, Good Friday. The day when the skies turned black and Jesus was made sin for us. Very true. But Sunday's coming. And he rose on a Sunday. Amen. Hallelujah. He did so much for us. And now it's our turn to do something for him. Let's live our lives for his glory. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.